Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Alex Wong. He is an associate professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada and also co-founder of Darwin AI, a startup that uses AI to address foundational challenges with deep learning and enterprise. As the use of machine learning and analytics becomes more widespread, we're beginning to see tools that enable data scientists and data engineers to scale and tackle many problems and maintain many more systems. This includes automation tools for the many stages involved in data science, uh, including model selection and hyperparameter tuning, as well as uh, fitting models for very specific uh, deployment environments. Wong and his collaborators are building solutions for enterprises along these lines. So we'll talk about these topics, many of which will be covered in uh, the 2019 AI conferences, beginning with the AI conference in New York in uh, mid-April. And for those of you who have interesting stories to share, the uh, call for speakers for our AI conference in Beijing is still open, and we are accepting uh, presentations in English for that conference. So it'll be an opportunity for you to interact with the very vibrant AI community in China. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Alex Wong of University of Waterloo and Darwin AI, welcome to The Data Show. Thank you so much. So looking at your research at Waterloo, you describe it as basically the interplay between computational imaging and machine learning. So for our listeners who aren't that familiar with computational imaging, so give us a brief and high-level description. Sure, not a problem. So when it comes to computational imaging, it's how do we actually design hardware and software that go together to be able to capture information that you otherwise cannot. So most people are kind of in one or two camps. One is we're on the you know imaging uh, instrumentation side. Let's build something more sophisticated, bigger, you know, larger sensors and so on and so forth. And that's not really sustainable for a lot of different tasks and on, might not even get you the information you need. And then there's the other camp, which where they focus more on the software side, which, okay, just give us whatever data and we'll make it look nice, make it look pretty, get information out of it. But again, garbage in, garbage out. So when it comes to computational image, what we do is we do hardware software co-design so the underlying system will give you more information than you otherwise would get. So, for example, we build a system, a uh, imaging microscopic system that is able to image without using a single lens, right? And that's leveraging computational optics and models to achieve that. We're also the first people to build the first uh, blood flow imaging system that gives you unparalleled access to your arterial and venous flow. Those are kind of things that's enabled by leveraging computational with knowledge in uh, imaging technologies. So as far as industry applications, it's mainly in uh, uh, medicine and healthcare, or are there other areas where you see a lot of this? Oh, there's actually a, 
areas in where we see a lot of this outside of the standard healthcare and life sciences. We also see a lot for things like manufacturing, uh, one of uh, which is uh, non-destructive testing is one additional area. Uh, the other thing is for environmental, which is another big thing where right now a lot of the imaging systems are kind of locked away in these large labs and you can't move. So having, we help build miniature systems, computational imaging systems that you can actually bring on the field and directly, for example, do water measurements or micro measurements and so on and so forth. So I actually kind of just recently uh, became aware of all the interesting things happening here, mostly because a friend of mine, Ben Recht, start a center here in Berkeley called the Berkeley Center for Computational Imaging with oh. people like Laura Waller. I don't know if you know her. Um, oh, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, and uh, and so I kind of uh, realized that there's some machine learning and optimization at play here. So how did you become interested in machine learning or has it always been part of what you do because you're working on computational imaging? Well, I mean, it's one of the things that I've actually uh, been always doing. So uh, even before I started doing computational imaging, I actually focused more on artificial intelligence. I've been doing, I guess, deep learning for uh, more than a decade now. And so one of the reasons actually I started doing computational imaging was I got tired of waiting for data. So pretty much, you know, with what I do on the AI side, requires quite a lot of uh, data, especially imaging data. And so with a lot of situations where I'm just on a holding pattern, which I think, well, I have the knowledge. Why don't I actually build systems that are better that I could have directly in my laboratory? And that's exactly what led me to doing computational imaging. So you described uh, being in deep learning for over a decade. So now if I do the math, that's 2008. So the kind of the famous breakthroughs in deep learning around speech and vision were 2011, 2012. So were you, were you kind of like in the wilderness for a few years there? <laughs> Pretty much. So, yeah, it, it was. A, a, so when I was doing it, also uh, partly was people really didn't care that as much. Like we were doing a lot of uh, innovative work, especially working with uh, certain industrial partners to get it into their pipelines. But at that point, I mean, didn't have as much big data. Uh, we're, we're still uh, struggling to actually with computational power. So the uh, types of you know deep learning we're working on has, is much on a much smaller scale. So we're tackling smaller problems, and then. This happened, and then things just exploded. So I, I'm just fortunate to be in this area. So you also wear uh, another hat, which is that of an entrepreneur in a company called Darwin AI. So tell us kind of the origins and the genesis of uh, Darwin. Okay. So pretty much uh, we started Darwin AI in around the early 2017 between myself, Professor Shafi, who's a research professor in the University of Waterloo, as well as two of my former students, Francis as well as Brendan. And so part of the impetus that led us to start this was pretty much having worked on like machine learning, deep learning for more than a decade, both in academia as well as in industry. It really became very evident to me that there's a significant barrier to widespread adoption. And one of the main things that for me that really clicked in was one of the big bottlenecks is that it was very difficult to design, build, and explain deep neural networks especially you wanted to meet operational requirements. So like even now, I would say I'm pretty terrible at building things to spec, right? Because the process just involves way too much guesswork, trial and error. And so it's just hard to build systems that work in real-world industrial systems. So one of the, I guess, out-of-the-box moments that we had was pretty much the only way we could actually kind of do this is kind of reinvent the way we think about building deep neural networks, which is can we actually leverage AI itself as a collaborative technology that works with people 
to design and build much better networks. And that led to the start of Darwin AI. And that's kind of our main grand vision for pretty much enabling deep learning for anyone, anywhere, anytime. The way you described it, so there's definitely a human in the loop, a, yeah. a, a domain expert. So what level of knowledge in terms of uh, data and modeling is your target user? Yes. So right now, our target users is more in the enterprise realm where there's a certain level of maturity as an individual who have a good enough understanding of deep learning that they could actually build a system. It might not be to spec, it might not be the best system, but they at least have a way of actually data procurement, data preparation, as well as building some preliminary models. If they have that level of knowledge, then what they can do is then work with what we call generous synthesis, which is our main technology, which will then work with the person to develop better alternatives, better networks based on these initial human intuition. So the, so as you describe it, so one of the things that you're trying to enable people is to be able to build models. So as I look around, so the typical way that people approach deep learning is let's take an existing uh, network. I don't know what it is, uh, ResNet, Inception, right? So, mm -hmm. And then uh, to try to see if transfer learning is good enough. If not, go from there and try to uh, build upon an existing network. So what is the intuition then behind your alternative approach? Okay, so the process you described is exactly it. People right now, the most common way is they go on GitHub, look for some kind of model. They'll see if they could transfer learning and they could train it up. And then if it doesn't train up, what do they do? They tweak a couple of knobs, a couple of parameters, maybe add a couple of layers, reduce a couple of layers, and then they wait through the whole process of seeing if that one magic number, which is accuracy, is up to snuff. And that's actually a very difficult task. And that's why people hire a lot of uh, people working on the same problem, hoping that one of them would have a magic ticket. And suppose you get that magic ticket and you train something to a certain level of accuracy. Hey, guess what? In many situations, your system can't even run in your real-world operational environment, right? So what we try to do, what we help with, is with generous synthesis, what you do is you pretty much provide your prototype, right? So you create a rough prototype that works well enough, but maybe not, not to spec, maybe not to the same level actually that you want. Then you provide this rough prototype to generous synthesis along with your task, your data, and then tell it exactly what kind of requirements you need. Do you need to be three times faster? Do it need to be four times smaller? Right? Those are dictated by what a person knows, which is exactly what they need the network to be good for. And given this information, then generative synthesis will actually learn from this wealth of information provided by the person right? and take their design uh, considerations into account. And then what it does, it learns and it builds not one, but a bunch of different alternative neural networks, each one unique, that is actually still meets the operational requirements but has different trade-offs. You might have one that's, let's say, 10 times smaller, right? And still more accurate than what you have or around as accurate as you have. Or maybe there's another one that, you know, isn't, isn't that small. It's not as small, right? Still much better than what you had before, but actually has higher accuracy. Now you can pick and choose, right? This one might be more appropriate for my cloud solution. This one might be more appropriate for my edge solution. And then I could take what Genesis is create. I could make modifications on top of that. That's why we're talking about kind of like AI as a collaborator. You can take that, you can build upon it, you can modify it, you can add new data, you might have a new scenario, and then you could pass it back into Genesis Synthesis with your new requirements, and then you can have a very iterative, collaborative workflow that way. So that's what we offer. So in many ways, so when you think about machine learning, 
in developing a model, you have you have the space of possible models, and you're kind of exploring the space. And then uh, at some point, you decide, okay, so this model I have is good enough, but uh, you know the space of possible models is so huge, you don't have actually searched it well and efficiently. So at a very high level, what is the intuition behind generative synthesis and how it actually searches through this uh, space of possibilities? Sure, that's good. So uh, that's a very good question. So the general, uh, I guess, uh, concept of generative synthesis is we have a, our goal is to find the best generative model that meets your particular operation requirements, which, you know, could be size, speed, you know, accuracy, so on and so forth. And so the intuition behind that is that we treat it as a large constraint optimization problem where we try to identify the pretty much your, the, a generative machine that will actually give you the highest performance. And so to do that, what we do is we have a unique way of having an interplay between a generator and an inquisitor where the generator will generate networks that the inquisitor probes and understands. And then it learns intuition about what makes a good network and what doesn't. And then it gives that feedback to the generator. The generator itself will retune itself to learn to build better networks based on this feedback from the inquisitor. And this interplay between the generator and inquisitor keeps going on until it hits a certain desirable point. And so what we could treat this as is a much more intelligent, guided way to doing search without being very exhaustive. Because like you said, right, the design space is just too huge. But when you have this guidance back and forth to figure out exactly what works well, what doesn't, then you kind of converge much to a much better solution. So what about, Alex, what about training time? Because every time you probe, you know, there's a, you have to kind of train the model up to a point, right? So, so then there's some compute. So then uh, isn't this going to take a lot of compute? Well, one of the key things that we design is uh, there's a lot of other approaches out there that does, in fact, take a lot of compute. But uh, the way we design it is that even on single GP, you could do this actually really quickly. So just as a rule of thumb, you're actually able to, I mean, it varies depending on how much you want to push gender synthesis. But, you know, to get something that's actually quite a lot better than what you have initial as a starting point, pretty much it would take maybe uh, two times the usual kind of a training time, which when you're able to get a much better network is actually not too bad. And based on, uh, so you, you wrote this paper and then you, you folks at Darwin developed uh, software to implement this uh, generative synthesis approach for uh, building models. So based on what you've seen, that the, the software is producing, do the networks look the same or is there some variety or is it leading to some surprising things that you wouldn't have explored or is it just minor variations on that starting model? No, that's a very good question. So uh, what we were able to see is that, first of all, there's actually a good amount of variety, which, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting by uh, based on the design. And it's also interesting to see some of the areas that it thinks it's efficient, like in terms of the uh, generated network. There are certain networks that, for us, it didn't seem too intuitive, right? Uh, there were cases where it was like 10 times smaller or, you know, 20 times smaller, and we're like puzzled as to, wow, how is this even working? But these are kind of things that I think a machine is able to do that a person can do. It could pretty much, it could design at the neuron level, at the synapse level that a person can't. So yeah, we're seeing things that are actually, I, I would say, quite ridiculous. The fact that it actually works at all. You know, because there's the other, uh, so there, there are the people who do the kind of that uh, SGD, stochastic gradient descent, right? So obviously, yeah, 
they prescribe the model up front. But then there's the people who are exploring neuroevolution, and some of them are also evolving the architecture. But obviously that's slow. But then the idea there is maybe there's some surprising things that you wouldn't have come up with. It sounds like that's what this approach is producing as well. Exactly. The way we like to see it is kind of like a happy medium uh, between what a lot of people are doing. And the advantage of that is, unlike a lot of these other approaches, we have the human in the loop. So essentially now you have this additional prior knowledge that that person has built up that can help guide this process. I think that that's what really speeds things up. So not only is it able to discover things that, you know, a person can't do, it's able to do it much quicker than a pure, you know, brute force kind of exploratory approach. So you, you described two components, kind of the generator and the inquisitor. So it sounds like you've got something like a GAN, huh? So yeah, a lot of people will ask that kind of question. <laughs> so it, it's very common, right? So I mean, GANs are, they're great. Uh, I, I think that, I think the, it does involve pretty much two machines similar to GANs. But the key differentiator here is with GANs, you have two, pretty much you have two systems competing with each other. In this case, we have more of a collaborative, uh, synergistic approach where they're a lot more peaceful. They're not fighting each other. They're actually helping each other do better. So in this case, it's helping the generator build better networks. And then the things that the inquisitor sees that the generator builds helps it learn to explain what exactly are good networks. So I think it's more of a synergistic approach. I like to think of it from a more positive side. So the paper that describes this generative synthesis is uh, fairly new, right? So it's uh, uploaded to archive in just this September. Yes, that's correct. And uh, so are you, is this something that will be presented in a conference? So uh, right now we just on archive. We're still exploring with the best venues to present it. I think this is essentially where we did this in parallel with our beta platform launch so that people can get a better understanding or idea as to what, what we're actually building in our platform. Well, maybe if you can explain it for industry people, we can figure out if it fits into one of our O'Reilly AI conferences. That, that would be perfect. And so then the other piece of technology you have is this notion of a net score, which is a kind of a performance uh, metric for uh, uh, neural networks, particularly ones that are def- uh, deployed on the edge. So describe at a high level what this net score is and what uh, problem it's trying to address. So I'll first kind of talk about what problem it's trying to address. And so that's actually something that I actually had personal experience with. Like I have a lot of students and myself, we're trying to build networks. What is the magical performance metric everyone uses right now? So it's accuracy, right? Great. But accuracy really tells you nothing about how well it's going to work from an edge perspective. You can have the most accurate system, but if you can't get it to run, it's not really going to mean too much. And so what you see is like, as part of that paper, we showed there's like many different, very interesting architectures that have been proposed, right? That has led to, in this case, for uh, over a 25% increase in accuracy, which is great. But if you take a look at most of those approaches, they can't run on edge devices, right? So is there a better way to assess a network beyond just accuracy? And so what NetScore tries to do is actually quite tries to quantify a balance between accuracy, which is important. If I have the smallest network, but it has the accuracy of zero, it's still not useful, right? But it finds, actually conveys a single metric that conveys the balance between accuracy, computational complexity, as well as size. And so therefore, if something that's really large, 
right, but it's very accurate, then it might not score as well as something that is maybe, you know, 1% off in terms of accuracy, but it orders of magnitude smaller. So this allows for a much better assessment. And when we assessed using this kind of metric, we found that there's certain newer designs that people have done to find this balance to perform much better. And so now there's a way to actually quantify that. And so actually, uh, there are a group of people who have focused on this notion of uh, making sure that the networks you have run on edge devices. Uh, the people who come to mind are people like Song Han, who's now at MIT. And then uh, I actually am an advisor to a company where some of the founders were behind SqueezeNet, uh, the deep scale folks. So what exactly is new about NetScore in terms of uh, NetScore as a way for assessing uh, networks? So one one of the main intuitions behind this, one of the main motivations is having something that's simple and easy to understand, right? So I, I know there's a lot of companies like DeepScale and so forth who are exploring this, but it requires this very deep knowledge to be able to do that. And they're analyzing like pretty much many, many multiple factors that are involved with kind of efficiency. So, and right now they might be able to do that in-house, but suppose I have like 10 different networks, 20 different networks, 30 different networks. How do I actually compare them? right? Initially, so that I could identify, like you mentioned, right, which of these, like out of 10, which of these two are the ones that I should pursue a little further, right? It's, it's difficult. I, it's hard to say, okay, please uh, try 50 different networks and, you know, assess 10 different factors and try to figure out exactly what works best. So the motivation behind NetScore is allows you very rapidly to compare networks similar to when people say big O, right? Big O analysis in algorithmic uh, complexity. It doesn't solve all problems, but it allows you to compare algorithms on a very even ground without worrying about, you know, your underlying computing architecture and so on and so forth, so that then you could choose a couple uh, of uh, algorithms to explore. That's kind of the notion of NetScore. So the main advantage here is it's a single number, single metric that you can use to compare across networks of the same task. So the prior thing that people were using and is something called information density, right? Uh, so... At a, very, at a high level, let's not get too technical. So what is new about NetScore that information density wasn't able to address? Yeah. So one of the key things that information density wasn't able to address is pretty much the notion of the computational cost. That's something that is not taken into consideration for information density. So a lot of people have that general notion that, well, if I build a network that has you know fewer parameters, right, then it should logically run faster, right? But the answer is that's actually not true. There's actually many cases where we have a small network, but the memory requirement, the computational cost is actually greater, much greater than networks that appears to be much larger. Well, one good example is DenseNet. So DenseNet doesn't have that many parameters compared to some of the larger architectures. So people say, oh, wow, DenseNet would run really fast. But if you actually look at the inference speed of DenseNet, it's actually really slow. Why? Because it has lots of different connections, in which case I have a lot of information and I need to compute through the, all that information that I had in the past. So having a way which NetScore provides that takes computational costs as well as size of the network into account gives you a much better idea between the trade-offs that is necessary when we talk about model efficiencies. So we've talked about two different research projects that you're turning into tools. The first one, generative synthesis allows you to kind of explore the space of models. And then the next thing we talked about was NetScore, which allows you to assess kind of uh, overall network performance. 
So how do these two fit in terms of Darwin? Is it uh, for a Darwin user? Yeah. So for a Darwin user, they're able to use general synthesis to build lots of different alternatives in terms of brand new, unique designs that would be better than what they're able to create as a person, right? And not only that, you're able to then visualize the underlying performance of everything that gets generated. So therefore, you're able to look at the trade-offs that are made by general synthesis by looking at it under a net score. As well, as within the general synthesis platform that we're building, you could actually then compare different networks and compare their different net scores and kind of use that for things like A-B testing. You know, is network A better for me to explore? Is network B better? And what's the reason why? So that's where this comes into our entire framework. So it sounds like uh, the way you described NetScore, one of the areas that you folks think that deep learning is going to take off is the edge, right? That's one of the focuses. It's, it's actually one of the tougher problems. But one of the key things I would also like to emphasize is what we're doing at Darwin also helps greatly for the cloud. A lot of people assume that, okay, great, we have massive computing problems, all the problems solved. It's, it's not really the case. You still have latency issues on the cloud, right? And the other thing, just because you have access to this massive computing power doesn't mean that computing power comes for free. And so if you're able to build much more efficient network, right, you can also run them more efficiently on the cloud, and you're able to scale much better. Imagine... Darwin AI, you know, the underlying genesis platform is able to help you build a system that runs, let's say, five times faster. In which case, what you can do is you can now increase your throughput by fivefold. So think of the increase in coverage. So I'd say edge is one of the things that it really benefits, but also cloud computing as well. So these two tools kind of uh, enable you to build models that are more accurate, maybe more efficient, and fits your deployment requirements, right? So from an energy perspective and things like that. But there's other considerations that um, data scientists and machine learning engineers are, are starting to emphasize, right? So there's uh, privacy and security, fairness, uh, and then the other thing is explainability. So I, I know that you folks are interested in explainability. So how does explainability fit into what you're doing? That's a very good question. And so how it fits in is it's actually a very nice bonus that comes from our generous synthesis technology. So we have pretty much two components. We have the generator, which learns to generate really efficient networks. But we have an inquisitor that learns how to understand and explain the intrinsic inner workings of deep neural networks, right? And that's the thing that relates to explainability. With the inquisitor, we're able to learn and explain from the inquisitor what makes a deep neural network tick? As if when it makes a certain decision, exactly what led to that particular decision, right? And so that's where the explainability comes from. So it, it, it almost comes with the tools that you've already built. That's exactly it. It's one of the things that we say, if it learns how to make a good neural network, it better know how to explain it, right? And so it comes directly as part of the genesis of the technology. So since you're also a uh, associate professor at the University of Waterloo, I want to take advantage of your time and, and kind of try to assess uh, what are you seeing out in the world of deep learning and, and beyond? So not just deep learning, but machine learning in general, which includes some of these model-based methods like Bayesian's machine learning and things like that. So what is seemingly interesting to you and what is uh, exciting? Yes. So there's quite a few things that I find actually quite exciting. 
might might not seem the most exciting to a lot of people, but for me it is. So uh, one of which is on the notion of deep neural network test coverage. That's something that I found actually quite interesting. There's a quite a lot of movement towards that direction, which is now we're getting to the form where you know we're able to build deep neural networks that are actually quite amazing, right? But when it screws up, then it could screw up pretty royally. So one of the key things with uh, proper test coverage, especially for a neural network, which is a concept that people have been using in software design for a long time, but now is slowly being adapted to deep learning, is how do you actually make sure that your deep neural network works well for a large number of cases, right? So having proper coverage is actually quite important. So uh, another area that I find extremely interesting, which I'm also doing a lot of work, is more on the uh, adversarial uh, attacks as well as defense side, which again, right, we've gotten to the point where we have systems that work quite well in ideal situations, but changing a single pixel will break it completely. So developing new ways to defend against such attacks or identify these anomalies is also of uh, great interest. And I think actually there's going to be a lot of work in that area as well. And the uh, last thing that I would uh, like to say is that I, I also find a lot of the uh, work right now, the re, I guess the insurgence of uh, causal reasoning to be of very great interest because I, I think that also gives huge amount of value in terms of uh, explainability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Judea Pearl stuff, right? Oh, yeah. And I know. It's, and it's, I think we're at the stage where this becomes a much bigger reality than when it was first introduced because now we have the computer power as well as the data to actually really drive some of these decisions. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of the test coverage because... Uh... You know, one of the heartening things uh, over the last two years is that data scientists and machine learning researchers are really engaged in the topics of fairness and ethics That's and, right. and, and privacy. But I'm predicting that next year, the same kind of interest and discussion will start popping up in areas of reliability and safety, right? So completely agree. I mean, if we want to deploy things in real world mission critical systems, like for healthcare, for all uh, automotive and so on and so forth, safety and reality just becomes like critical. And then uh, the adversarial attacks I also find interesting. I mean, so there's the uh, all these things around uh, generating fake content, right? So, but you know, as I uh, dug into it, it seems like actually uh, the detectors seem to be a little ahead of the generators, at least for now. But uh, but the larger problem there is actually kind of the information propagation. <laughs> Right. Oh no, uh, I completely agree. Yeah. Because uh, by the time it, uh, by the time people realize it's fake, it's already been uh, propagated. So then there's the notion of machines deceiving people, but there's also people deceiving machines, like uh, yes. troll armies deceiving search rankings and making topics trend. But there's also, of course, machines deceiving machines in the forms of bots. Right. So yeah, yeah. Right. So these are all very interesting areas. That I mean. We might not be able to solve all these problems now, but working towards them becomes very critical. And so what about other areas that are kind of related to your interest, but maybe you're not working on like some of these things around evolution, neuroevolution, Bayesian stuff? Well, I mean, there's we actually uh, inside our research lab, we, we always believe in diversity. So we are, in fact, uh, looking into those particular areas. And I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things that can be done there because we've done for we've done a lot of the neural evolution ourselves. But one of the key things that we've been trying to tackle in that particular era is on scalability, which is is is, is there a better way to uh, evolve so that it's a lot more uh, efficient. And we're actually trying to uh, working on ways of combining uh, neural evolution with some of the uh, traditional uh, Bayesian approaches 
to actually see if there's a way that we could guide the evolution in a much more, I guess, controlled manner that leads us to better solutions quicker. So it sounds like you would have a lot of in common with the Uber AI people. Ken's, yes, Ken's, I've Ken's, seen a lot of like Ken Stanley and all their wonderful yeah, yeah. Zubin and all the, yeah, those yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alex, this has been great. Thank you for your time. Not a problem. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You can follow Alex Wong on Twitter at Darwin AI. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.